Hi, everyone. Welcome to our podcast. Shut the fuck up. We are not done talking yet. I'm Sharla. And I'm Danielle. Together, we will be discussing current events, pop culture, writing, books, movies, and women's lives. We are smart, funny, and occasionally profane. Thanks for listening. See you on the other side. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Shut the Fuck Up. We're not done talking yet. Today, we have a very special guest, author Steve Almond. Hi, Steve. Hi. Hi. I love the name of your podcast. Thank you. There is a history about it. Uh, There's a story behind it. I actually said that to my husband, shut the fuck up. I'm not done talking yet. Yes. That's sort of the implicit bubble that's coming out of every conscious woman's (laughs) mind, if not her, her mouth. Uh, almost all the time. I yeah. have yeah. to imagine. Certainly but my you, wife's. <laughs> you know, Steve, you were actually the first man guest we've had on the show. Well, I'm glad I'm wearing a dress. Glad <laughs> you're dressed. Yeah. But let me tell you about that a little bit. First of all, we know you in person because you've been our writers, our writing teacher at Esalen, and Charlotte's seen you at the Florida conference that I'm forgetting the name of. Sanibel. Yeah. Sanibel right. Island. And yeah. as our teacher, you do almost all the time praise women and you're a woman's champion. I know you're married and have two daughters and a son. Is that right? right. Yeah. So we feel so comfortable with you because we know that you're into what we're into in our rights and growth and feeling heard, feeling heard. Yeah. So important. We know there's no chance of mansplaining, no mansplaining, no manspreading. <laughs> yeah. It's funny. I mean, I I do have to, th- there's this term woke, which yeah. I, I do not like for any number of reasons, but the central one is that kind of everybody's partially asleep Absolutely. in some way. Yeah. And then people um, come to consciousness about things. And so, uh, you know, I still man spread because it's habit, it's patriarchal habit. And I'm a dude and I grew up in a family of dudes and um, with a lot of privilege and I've tried to work hard too, but with, like I started out way ahead in lots of ways. And so, you know, I'm not woke. I have moments of being a shitty, misogynistic, fucked up person. And then also I have moments of trying to recognize like, just you're not, you're being a jerk if you're taking up too much space rhetorically, you know, physically, emotionally, psychologically, and you should try to limit that jerky behavior. But that feeling of like, well, some people are woke and some aren't, it feels so sanctimonious. And mm-hmm. the, it just lacks humility. Like everybody's, uh, regardless of what story they were born into, has blind spots and, you know, and, and, and creates new ones out of pain and frustration and whatever other anxieties they're, they're shouldering. So... I definitely have been thinking a lot as a teacher about, I mean, most of the time when I'm teaching, I'm teaching to rooms that are mostly women. And, mm-hmm. and, um, and I don't know what story everybody was born into, even if I know their gender, 
So I have a clear sense, and sometimes I'll even articulate that part of the reason that I'm at the front of the room, blah, blah, blahing, is because of the body and story that I was born into. And um, that said, I, I really feel, I think, now more comfortable in rooms where there isn't a lot of um, male energy because I think just men take their self-doubt and they weaponize it and women take their self-doubt and internalize it. And mm. I um, would, would rather be talking with people who are genuinely are, want to learn. And that's more often, more often than not, not always, but more often than not, that's women. I think you described it really well. I mean, as a woman, I always feel that men are super confident, even if they don't have any particular reason to be. And Especially if they have no particular reason. And actually, yeah, that's a really good point. And that there's this need to be right. And I, I sort of feel like it's because boys and girls grow up in different worlds and boys grow up in worlds where things are competitive and there's this sense of one-upmanship and who's on top and you know girls are over there playing totally different games and playing with dolls and you know it's like men are just they have a different agenda in the world i think that's been imposed on them to establish let's say dominance in yeah. interactions whether well, it's interactions with women or interactions yeah. with other men yeah I, I think, um, I mean, I, I think people in general struggle with, as you said, sort of being heard and also competitive anxiety. And so like I have two daughters and they are both capable of being competitive and resentful. And I think um, like uh, having a now an adolescent girl, there's all kinds of much more private uh, forms of competitiveness. Mm -hmm. Who's the best mom? Who looks the best? Who's the most attractive mm -hmm. under the male gaze? Da, da, da. So I just don't think it's good to, you know, everybody, it, that's part of the human arrangement is that people um, kind of turn their insecurity into this battle for dominance. What I will say is that men are socialized and, and patriarchal thought and behavior sort of shapes men and boys in a way that makes them want to be sort of publicly dominant. And, and now what we're seeing in a, in a powerful way is what's always existed, but now is starting to get articulated, which is that male rage is really intended to uh, um, erase female trauma. Like you look at the spectacle of something like Kavanaugh, that's the entire ball game. You yeah. look at what, what's happening now in this, um, impeachment hearing or any public forum or, or Trump as a kind of um, sort of unicorn version of an old school misogynist. It is such a, you know, people talk a lot in the election about, and I wish I, in bad stories, I'd written more about this, but I think it was invisible, especially to men, the extent to which there wasn't just white lash, that was a part of it, ginning up racial resentment to to try to obscure economic justice. That's an old bad story. It's, it's, it's maybe the founding bad story of the United States. But I think even more central to that was this dicklash, frankly, was this feeling that the reason that the national convention for one major party was chanting as the only thing they could agree on 
lock her up, lock her up, was because the basic agenda there was to criminalize female autonomy, volition, and especially ambition. That was the whole, Hillary was just a scapegoat, a receptacle for this broader way in which it is a familiar and comfortable place, both for men and women, to criminalize women who speak up, who persist, who make themselves heard, and in that way unsettle the way in which we're all moving through and feel most secure with some uh, basically um, patriarchal arrangement. And when somebody tries to upset that, inevitably there is going to be uh, kind of a, a Trump-like figure who comes along or a Kavanaugh, whoever it is. And you see this kind of play out day after day with the Jim Jordans and Matt gets all these guys, Lindsey Graham's getting in on the action, all these guys whose real purpose, and you hear it in right-wing radio as I try to trace it back, it's all about a kind of cult of ecstatic white male victimization, which is really um, kind of the foundation of uh, a, a kind of totalitarian or fascist talos, a grand narrative, which takes the real power dynamics that white dudes are on really in charge of most everything. And anybody else who, who gets there has to work twice as hard and gets twice as shitty a seat. And it turns it on its head and says, actually, really, it's the white, straight, Christian males who are the true victims in every scenario, no matter how absurdly they have to bend the world to that conclusion. It's extremely ironic, of course, that the people who actually have the power complain about being victims, like Kavanaugh did. Yeah, well, I think, and, and I mean, it's not exclusive, like this is a human tendency. And I would say that because of the culture that we're in, it's predominantly like white men are way out in front on that race. Those neural pathways have been carved and they've been carved in a way that we, everybody who's outside of it is still like, I talk in bad stories about the story of um, Ahab, you know, mm -hmm. Moby Dick, like those neural pathways have been carved in our consciousness so that we don't even look at the founders and say, oh yeah, those were a bunch of white men who were trying to lock in their power and prerogative. Well, how'd they do that? Well, women didn't have the vote and, and certainly human property, African-Americans didn't have the vote and they worked out a compromise with the folks in the South to make sure the electoral college and everything, three fifths clause, all of that was those were founders and we you know, lionized them. There were lots of beautiful ideals that they set out, but the central thing they were doing was locking in white male power. And we don't tell that story because we're, we're swimming in it. It's like asking a fish to talk about the water. Right, exactly. You know, your book was very interesting to me, Bad Stories. The full title being, What the Hell Just Happened to Our Country? Mm -hmm. Right. And I recommended it to many people after I discovered it because it was, to my mind, one of the best books about the election that I read. And of course, it was not just about the election. It was how do we get to the situation where we would vote for somebody like a Donald Trump. So it went, it went back in history, lots yeah. of research, looking at it from every possible angle. But one of, the, one of the things that you sort of tackled was there was this bad story going around. And a bad story in your book is one that is a false story. 
Right. Um, one was that, you know, women won't elect Trump. So women won't vote for Trump. Right. He won't get elected. And that turned out to be completely untrue. And you had some sort of interesting conversations. I think it was with one of your students. There yeah. was a story in there about a woman who had written poignantly about yeah. suffering trauma at the hands of a man. And then seconds later is sort of attacking Michelle Obama. And it turns out probably she voted for Trump. Right. And that, you know, maybe you could talk a little bit about kind of what your thoughts are about why and how women voted for this person who was right. misogynistic yeah. in every possible way. Right, who, who, who bragged about grabbing women by the pussy, you know, some, a, a phrase and, and a sentiment that is so far outside the boundaries of decency that we couldn't talk about it with our kids or even our adolescents, right? And, and you can sort of tick down the list. So that incident was, was on the night after the election. So in, in an early draft of the book, I started there mm -hmm. because I was so agitated. But it was such an example of the bad stories is an effort to look at the state of our politics and our public morality through the lens of storytelling. So if we look back at, like I was mentioning uh, Moby Dick, what, what that is is a grand American story, maybe the great American story, that's about an angry, aggrieved, unmanned dude who leads people on a doomed expedition. And everybody, when, when wounded masculine aggression is the central story that a culture is telling, the ship is gonna sink and everybody's gonna die. And, if, and, and whether you look upon Trump in disgust or in rapture, if you're looking at him, if you're making him the central storyteller in the culture, there's gonna be a bad outcome. And with this woman, what was clear to me was that people are not, and I hope that this comes through in the book, like people are constructed of good stories and bad stories. We're made, like people are made of atoms and molecules, we're made of stories. And some of those stories are uh, courageous and try to sort of get us to see our blind spots and, our, and, and admit to our weaknesses and live up to our, our, our best intentions. And those good stories produce good outcomes, right? The Sermon on the Mount produces good outcomes. If you say it is our job partly, not entirely, but partly to care for the weak and the iniquitous and, and the helpless and the refugee and the, the starving child and the, the sinner, then you start to make very merciful decisions. And if you tell bad stories, you're gonna end up with bad outcomes. And rather than opening our browsers every day and lamenting those, we're better to try to trace back what bad stories led to those bad outcomes. But what's so complicated is that I don't think anybody has the franchise on good or bad stories. Nobody is fully woke. That woman was two things at once, even though we don't wanna admit it. She was somebody who was brave and who reckoned with a moment of trauma from her past and wrote about it beautifully and courageously, and also was really upset and agitated by that and worried about, and it was destabilizing and, and made her vulnerable and exposed in a way that she felt very uncomfortable with. And in this climate, somebody like Trump is basically saying, don't worry about your inner life, don't worry about your conscience, don't worry about your subtext, just anybody who's trying to, to get you to worry about that stuff is your enemy because the inner life is a chaotic and dangerous place, so put it out of your mind. So another story that she told herself after this class was over is, hey, everybody's overreacting. 
this guy's not going to be so bad. Stop worrying so much. And by the way, really, I'm going to attack another woman because she was immodest in ways that that the bad story inside me that tries to tell women how they should behave and get grants myself the right to judge other women tells me I, you know, I, I'm kind of moving through life also in, in that, not delusion, but in that sort of petty way. Mm-hmm. She was both a courageous and interesting and, and intelligent woman and also somebody like the rest of us who was broken enough to either probably vote for Trump or maybe just sit the election out, which most people did, frankly. Like Trump didn't get elected because, because so many people voted for him. He got 63 million. That's lots. 104 million didn't vote, and 66 million voted for the other candidates. So Trump was primarily elected by our apathy, I think, and by our um, kind of loss of faith, maybe. Do you feel like there's less apathy now because this happened in our, whatever, in our liberal groups in the United States? I've been working since the election, Charlotte has too, like texting from moveon.org or writing postcards and raising money for democratic groups and candidates. And that, let me just tell, and sometime in 2017, we had two gentlemen from Scotland visiting us, me and my husband. And they said, oh, he's just gonna win again. Don't you know that? And I didn't understand exactly where they got that sensation from, and I'm, or sorry, that, um, that idea from, and I'm really, frightened. You've heard that yeah. too, right? Um, yeah, I mean, I think, I think people are, I think a lot of people have responded in a way that I, I hope Bad Stories is steering them towards, which is, it is understandable to be anguished. But, but if, if that's all that we are, and people don't convert that anguish into action, we're doomed. Because I do think that there, there are more citizens of good faith, is the way that I think of it, than there are people who, um, for whatever reason, and for whatever complicated set of reasons, are telling themselves a story in which Trump is, if not a hero, a necessary evil, maybe, right? Because there are a lot of people who, you know, you know how people are. People look at the buffet menu and they don't say, well, I'm ordering all of it. They say, well, I'm ordering those tax cuts and I'm ordering those judges and I'm ordering, uh, you know, a deregulation and I'm ordering a good economy and I'm ordering low unemployment. They just pick and choose. And, and that's not, every, that's, that's all of us. We all do that. Um, so m- my sense is that, that we're going to find out. Nobody knows. And we, the, what we do know is that the guy in power and the party, the, the president and his party will do anything. Mm-hmm. They will seek openly and enable the seeking of foreign interference. They will suppress votes to the extent they can. They will create an entire for-profit in demagoguery um, industry, propaganda factory that is intended to frighten people and sow discord, even if that means it's coming directly from Vladimir Putin and satisfying him at the deepest level of his intentions. They've essentially said, we would rather cling to power with a minority party that's primarily at this point, the party of white people and the party of, of extremely wealthy people and the party of very, um, not fundamentalists, but people who, for whom religious dogma is the central driving story and, and prohibitions and rules. And 
you know, nobody really knows. And the only person, the only thing you can do, and this is something that sort of links this with almost anything else in your life, a relationship, the, the fate of your writing, uh, how well you love and care for your family and your friends. A lot of it's out of our control. And a lot of it is just recognizing that you shouldn't ask anybody else to save democracy. You should, mm. to the extent that you can, you should be saying, what am I doing? And how do I keep my own faith that my political action matters amid this drubbing of bad news, dispiriting news, the, the recognition that really cruelty and criminality has become the default setting. And it's really dispiriting. I mean, I can see it on your faces. Yeah, it's, we're, it's, yeah. It, it's, it, it's really depressing. And it's meant to be. It's meant to make you lose hope yes. and turn off and give up. Yep. And yeah. I, I, to the extent that it's possible at the end of bad stories, I say you've got to look at your media diet and you've got to sort of say, okay, um, I cannot wallow in this. I have to figure out what actions I can take in my own little world. I, I, in 2016, I did a lot of bloviating and a lot of wallowing. And in 2018, I said, well, I'm still going to do that because that's what I do and I can't rid myself of that entirely. But I'm also going to think about what influence do I have in the world? It's limited, but I love to teach and people enjoy my teaching. So let me start these workshops where people come and the, you know contribute some money to a candidate or cause they support. At the beginning, we talk a little bit about it. People gather together. They see that other people are concerned. They see that they're not alone in that anguish and in that hope. And they emerge. And then we just have a nice writing workshop, right? But they emerge from that feeling a little bit renewed. That's what I can do. Mm -hmm. And the question I always ask when I talk about bad stories or just, you know, sort of talk to a group of people, especially if they're young, is like, the question is, what are you, you know, what can you do? And if you're concerned about whatever it is, choose your, whatever's important on your menu, kids not being, refugees not being ripped, families being ripped apart, kids not dying in, in, in jail cells uh, and cages on the border, mass shootings not being enabled by the gun manufacturers, uh, you know, climate change being addressed in some real way. You can choose your list. Equal pay, income inequality, we, we all know what ails us. And whatever it is that gets you excited, whatever candidate or cause, that's your job. The power of somebody like the present, current president is really the function of the weakness of the rest of us and not weakness of um, uh, that we're not strong, it's that we um, feel dispirited and defeated because corruption and a certain kind of nihilism has taken over so much of the public discourse. And so that's our job is to, is to remain hopeful and figure out what we can do. Right. And then do it. <laughs> One thing that gives me hope is that Obama was elected twice. And, you know, when Trump was elected, my attitude was, you know, different people came to the polls. The election brought out different people in 2014 or 12 or 10 or whatever when Obama was elected. So that turnout is, is the key. And my attitude was the Republican Party in some sense is a minority party. They are in power because of voter suppression and all sorts of gerrymandering. And they've been really successful the last couple of decades at getting much more political power than they really should have. 
given how people actually feel and what people really believe. So I think what gives me hope is the idea that we could get people to turn out like in the midterms, 2018, there, you know, people were excited and people were ready to vote and they were really showing up to vote against Trump and Trumpism. So that part definitely gives me hope that there's a possibility of getting enough people to the polls to win, even in, you know, there's a handful of states that really make the difference, apparently. Right. You remember in 2008, when Obama was elected, his um, campaign manager, Rahm Emanuel, rocked inner city um, voters. He went out or they did, went out and registered and then got those younger yeah. people and younger people of color to come vote. And we need to do that again. And that last time they were like, Hillary, we don't care about Hillary. Well, they should have. Um, right. So, right. So let's see if we can do that again. Like, yeah. I mean, look. The, count.org. Yeah. yeah. I mean, th- th- that everybody's sort of looking at a different map and a different set of polls and so forth. And, and I get it. And, and I'm guilty of the same tendency you know we we kind of feel like this is in the past we've had inept um and i think um fraudulent administrations the reagan administration um uh, certainly george w bush i mean lying us into a war there are lots of things we now it's a, it's a continuum, but we've reached a point where it's quite clear, certainly in the last few days, as we realize that Barr is, you know, basically the, the president's attorney at this point. We no longer have an independent justice department. Um, you know, the, the State Department has been made a tool of, that's what this Ukraine thing really reveals, it's sort of been made a tool of personal political power. And so we're moving much more towards an openly authoritarian situation where if Trump is suddenly emboldened and he's ha ha making jokes about, you know, ruling forever. But there's a very real possibility that if the election is at all close, one, that there's going to be lots of foreign interference, two, that the Trump Trump sort of campaign is going to continue to sort of weaponize people's inner lives, the damaged part of their inner lives. There's going to be a climate of, of paranoia and violence that I think is going to be awakened and stoked to, to get people frightened, to get them agitated and dispirited. And there's going to be voter suppression and there's the inherent ways in which the Electoral College rigs it and voting on a Tuesday rigs it and all the things I talk about in, in bad stories. But nobody really knows. And the only thing you can do t- is to try to divert as much of your worrying anguish energy into, okay, well, what can I do? And what group can I join? And what canvassing can I do where are the possible people who are this sort of civically a- apathetic I agree that 2018 like I, in a purely selfish way I say well the reason that went better was because I did more mm-hmm. and if everybody takes that attitude that I have to do more because that's what um, really uh, w- we're seeing is that people uh, are much more motivated by their their primal negative emotions and it's 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 harder to keep a hold of the primal positive emotions. Think about the work that we do as writers or artists. There's a lot of people who are sorting through sorrow and disappointment and guilt and remorse and um, and and heartbreak. 
that's what people hold on to. That's what they return to in their art because they can't get rid of it by other means. And art is a really productive way of trying to figure out and forgive everybody involved. That's really hard in politics. You want to forgive Jim Jordan? You want to forgive Trump? You want to forgive Kavanaugh? It's really hard to bring yourself to that point. And then if you don't, what you become in a way is a kind of mirror image of the other side. I think it's, and that's very draining. I think psychologically and emotionally, people, especially women, are very drained and, and exhausted. And it's partly because we're all watching Ahab and we should be saying, you know what? There's probably a better ship that we could be on with a more merciful mission. And I don't, honestly, I know that there's a lot of discord and uncertainty about who the you know nominee is going to be. And I have my own strong feelings about that, but I basically am just saying, okay, when, when it's go time, I want to divert as much of my time and energy and passion and hope as I can into figuring out what ways I can, you know, be politically active and, and foster that in other people. And I, you know, I have no idea though. I don't know if those Scottish guys are right. And I don't know if, if, you know, the idea that uh, there's this giant blue wave that has been mobilized by this, by this very cruel, hateful, incendiary demagogue. Um, nobody knows, right. and, you, and, and you can't even control it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that I, I'm, I'm trying to sort of take the attitude that I'm putting nothing past how bad it's going to get, how yeah. much, how many rules are going to be broken, how much decency is going to be shattered, how much they're going to try to dispirit people, how dark it will get in those rallies. We all see it. But to some extent, we need to just say, that's not who I'm focused on. I'm focused on some 20-year-old kid who doesn't really recognize that politics is something other than ugly people yelling at each other on Twitter or on cable TV. And I need to somehow reach that person and say, this matters. You have college debt. This matters. You want to live in a habitable you know, country and planet. This matters. You want to have some way of of feeling that you're going to have health care without without going into debt should 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 something take the wrong turn in your family, and I don't know. Again, I think everybody's swimming in this sort of anxiety, and the only way out for me has been to say, all right, I must turn away from this cycle of bad news and figure out what can I do. Awesome. I think we need to turn the topic to lighter things because. Yes, a nice ending message. Thank you so much, Steve. That was pretty cool. So I have a question for you. Tell us about your older daughter who apparently, you know, writes letters to magazines and um, gets published and has her own. Does she have a podcast? She doesn't have a podcast. So my older daughter is named Josie. She, um, we just wrote an an article together uh, for a magazine that was about, we, we decided to get her a cell phone. We held off. We were going to not get her a cell phone until eighth grade. She's in seventh grade now. Um, but she was traveling on the bus across town and we wanted her, she was ending up using our cell phones to communicate with her friends who all have text. So anyway, we gave in and got her a phone, but with great ambivalence and with lots of rules and discussion and, you know, anguish discussions. And so we wrote a, an, an article about that. Um, it was a text conversation between us and it was kind of delightful to just see her, you know, telling me what her life was like, what she saw with her friends, the relationship that she has with her phone and how she 
what thinks about it and worries about it. Um, and she's just one of these people who um, maybe like a lot of adolescents is extremely dogmatic to put it bluntly. She, she you know, she sort of looks at what's happening with the climate and reads Scientific American and, you know, the New York Times and whatever else she's reading, and she's totally freaked out. And she cannot understand why the adult world mm. isn't taking it seriously. She cannot understand how she has grandparents, you know, my in-laws who who say things like, oh, well, Mother Nature will take care of herself, or you know, who who, who are sort of soft climate change deniers. And um, she's pretty you know, I'll post some stuff that she does, like on Twitter occasionally, she made a poster when the Super Bowl was was being played that was like this amazing distillation of my book against football. Like, I don't know why I bothered writing a whole, you know, book, because she did it in one poster. And, you know, Great. it was like shared 8,000 times because she just got to the heart of it so quickly and viscerally. So yeah, she's kind of, she's kind of amazing in that way. She's, she's obsessed now with Hamilton, um, because I think she, I, because I think every teenager is a kind of revolutionary who mm -hmm. is trying to cast off the yoke of the adult world and their parents and their parents' beliefs and dogmas and trying to become independent and trying to figure out how to write a set of rules for themselves that, that uh, to sort of self-govern that, that is inviolate and that will allow them to individuate and become somebody separate from their parents. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm kind of astonished by her, but also she's a pretty rough customer. And when she's angry at us um, and, and uh, you know, uh, she's fierce and she kicks the hell out of us. Now, how old is she? She's 13. She's only 13. <laughs> no, but that's when it starts to get bad. I have two daughters. Yeah. And they grow up to be lovely people. So yeah. That so I hear. <laughs> no, they're darling. Um, I <laughs> The other thing I was going to ask you about was, oh, yeah, what it was. Oh, yeah. Can you tell us your stance on football? I know your daughter did it better than you, but just tell us because I'm so interested in this. Well, I wrote this book against football that was an effort to say I'm a lifelong, I mean, it's sort of like that discussion about being woke. Mm -hmm. Like I'm a lifelong fan of football. I played it as a kid. I was a sports kid. I, I was competitive in that way. I understand the idea of a team sport. And, and perseverance and putting your body at risk for the team and the beauty, the ornate beauty and the strategic density and the, the balletic quality of football. I understand all these things and I love watching the game. I even love it as a form of narrative drama with its sudden reversals and its right. kind of individual players. And it's tremendously exciting. So, so, so the deal with, with that book about football was really my effort to kind of morally and 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 sort of psychically reckon with this thing that I loved and had very good reasons for loving and also knew when I checked under the hood that it was basically everything that's screwed up about America from the kind of oligarchic greed the conversion of our of our devotion to athletic heroism into a sort of bloodless money-making machine, the corruption of our educational system, where we say to certain kids, hey, you deserve to get a college education, sort of, if you can play, if you're big and strong and fast, and you can play uh, a sport that entertains us at the risk of your own body and brain. 
how deeply corrupt that is against the idea that we should be educating everybody because of the content of their minds and characters, right? Or that you say University of Michigan or University of Alabama, and we think of a football team rather than a library or a lab or a classroom. Uh, it's gender values are medieval, right? The men are, are successful because they're aggressive and violent and suppress their empathy, and the women bounce on the sidelines in halter tops for minimum wage, right? It, right. It's, it's right. Every, everything that you look at, when Rupert Murdoch came over and wanted to start a network, he said, I want to start a news network for football fans. That's what Fox News is. When oh. the, you have to sort of connect those dots. If football is the biggest thing in our culture, then dot, 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 we are a culture that's still controlled by patriarchal values, that still, that still believes and reinforces the idea that um, essentially the only way out for, for poor kids is through the sacrifice of their body, sort of indentured servitude to a, a violent sport, uh, a kind of cult of toxic masculinity that, that uh, big sports corporations, essentially the athletic industrial complex is basically an antitrust arrangement that says that, that big business should be unregulated uh, and, and that the profits from these huge spectacles, our bread and circuses, should go into the pockets of really rich guys so they can go off and get hand jobs at, at you know, massage parlors or whatever they wish to do or buy jets. And it's all there. Like, yeah. you know, it's not like it's, it's hiding in plain sight. Our devotion to football, our obsession with it is pretty much capitalism and American capitalism on steroids. And if it's led to an open cult of criminality and cruelty, that's because on a football field, any given Sunday, you are seeing a culture of violence and criminality. What would be defined in the court as aggravated battery is a great tackle. And, absolutely. and simultaneously, some uh, men are beating up their wives and girlfriends after the game. And during the game, right? And I don't know what the stats are for that, but it's pretty significant. Well, it's sort of like saying, look, if you say that this is the thing that you're going to worship and look at, then and and especially to the players, but but to all of us, then there are going to be certain obvious outgrowths of that. You can't be obsessed with something and not have it get into the groundwater of how we think about ourselves and what we're supposed to do in life and how we become winners. You know, bad stories has that chapter about how sports, yes. which people lionize reflexively, is really a zero-sum game. It's exactly, only way I can win is if you lose. The only way white people can win is if brown people lose. The only way men can win or stay on top is if women are put in their place with their fresh mouths, right? This is just basic kind of psychological math. And all of those things are true about football. And also, it's beautiful, and I love it. And those things have to exist somehow within me. But for me, what I was trying to reckon with is that suitcase full of rationalizations that says, just like if you watch trashy clips of Jon Stewart or cable TV that, that um, take you away from the parts of yourselves that are active participants in a democracy and make you a passive consumer of civic dysfunction or political dysfunction, if you sit and watch a football game and buy into that, you become a sponsor of everything. You cannot simultaneously say, so I just watch it, but it's really the players and the, the league that are corrupt. No, dude, you're in it too. And to the extent that I'm in, that I do that, I'm in it. And so the book was trying to sort of 
people don't want to connect those dots because if they do, then they have to stop watching their John Stewart or watching their NFL Sunday or, you know, having their uh, like right wing radio habit, which I have like a little secret right wing radio habit. And you know what I mean? They have to confront the parts of themselves that are addicted to things that are really bad for them and bad for everybody. And people don't generally want to do that. So against football was a very stupid way of doing that. Well, you're, you know, you also made the point in bad stories when you talked about this myth that sports brings us together as a nation. You went back and you quoted George Orwell. Can I read a little bit of what? Yeah, you sure. Now, at this point, I think you're quoting Orwell, who said, there cannot be much doubt that the whole thing is bound up with the rise of nationalism. That is, with the lunatic modern habit of identifying oneself with large power units and seeing everything in terms of competitive prestige. Right. And then yeah. you say Trumpism represented that large power unit, something fans could plug into like a football team, which would go out and kick ass on their behalf. Yeah. I mean, so that's what you see in these rallies. They're not, it's not a political discourse that's going on. It's a power grid that's being plugged into. And I'm not saying that to dismiss it. I'm saying it to recognize it. Like those people are having a powerful experience. Mm -hmm. And, you know, just like when I was 22 years old and I went to a heavy metal concert, you know, as the critic and thought, oh, this stuff's so lame. And then I was actually sitting there in the second row as Metallica is doing its thing. And I was realizing, wow, these kids are plugging into a powerful power grid. And as much as I can try to sit here and disavow it or say the music's dumb or the lyrics are lame or it's all monotonous or it's like they are having a religious experience. And my job isn't really to judge it and dismiss it as so much as to accept it and try to understand it. Say, okay, well, what's happening inside people? Honestly, I'm over trying to like convince people that they should feel this way or that way, but I'm very interested in why they do. And I'm very interested in digging underneath the story on the surface, which is a story about, you know, how this, this or that person that they're aggrieved against. And underneath that, if you listen long enough, is vulnerability, right? That's the real bad story is that our grievances can somehow erase our vulnerabilities. And that's what you see, like with football fans, when, you know, when, when you're obsessed with a football team, when I've been peak obsessed with a football team in my life, it's because other things were going terribly wrong in my life. And I wanted to plug into something, some source of power, of diversion, of escape, of, of the fantasy of omnipotence or, or um, you know, the possibility that I would win when inside I was feeling like a total loser. Steve, is it this, do you feel just specifically this way about uh, football because it's so violent um, and not about baseball, basketball, soccer, cup, tennis? Well, the reason that I wrote about football, were two, two reasons really. One, because I'm a fan and I understand it and love oh, it. Okay. And, and two, that it's the most popular sport. Oh, okay. it, you know, it, it's more popular by a factor of five than any other sport. And it is as such kind of symptomatic of, I always ask, what does a culture pay attention to? Okay. And, you know, and then why do they do that? What story is constructed or set of stories is constructed around that? And the more you look at it and the more seriously you take it, the more you realize, like I thought bad, I thought that, that against football would be a pretty short book. But as I started to write into it a bit, 
it became longer and longer and longer because it was about you know gender it was about race it was about education it was about militarism it, you know it was about all these things um and that's like i think we tend to write certain things off and and people certainly wanted oh football it's you know it's just whatever it's not that big a deal or it's silly i'm like nah whenever people give a lot of attention to something it has deep meaning and maybe you don't want to explore the meaning but they're experiencing it that's right that is a really good point i mean when people devote that much time and energy to football they build their whole schedule around it for the week they tell yeah, them to get the hell out of the living room you know, give me the remote. It's clearly something. They go to the game five hours early and have and tailgate with the, as much alcohol as possible. I went to a Raiders game once before they left Oakland. Oh my God! It scared the shit out of me. I was like, told my husband, I said, never do that again. I was caught in like like rushes, like squished by huge men that had their bodies painted silver. Right. I was like, yeah. I'm never doing that again. It was scary. Yeah, but for them, they're sitting there going, this is awesome. Yeah, they're, I they're, know. They're going, remember that game we went to? That was awesome, right? No, no. It, yeah, I, I had that one, one time, professional football game, one time, and that was, that was enough. Yeah. Well, Steve, I wanted to just ask you about one other thing that you covered in Bad Stories. You had one chapter where, I think the chapter was that people were, uh, let's see, paying more attention to their grievances and their vulnerabilities. And right. you, were, you were talking earlier about vulnerabilities. And you had a story in there about a friend of yours who was Harvard educated, very smart, um, mm -hmm. ended up, he voted for Trump, even though during the Obama years, he had benefited from some health insurance. Right. I don't know if it was the Affordable Care Act or well, what, he, right? He voted actually for the third party candidate. Okay. He's a kind no, of yeah. yeah. He, he's a Bill Weld sort of Republican. So like a Republican right. whose whose family was kind of in the Rockefeller Republicans, whatever you want to call them, the old fashioned people old -fashioned. who essentially ended up either leaving the party or just sort of trying to remain unnoticed by the world. So I don't think he could. He, but that guy's fascinating because he's a friend of mine and I love him. He's one of the most compassionate people I know, and also we have lost the ability to talk in a in a civil way about what's happening in our politics. And, and it's a great source of, uh, well, I shouldn't say great. It's a bummer to me because mm -hmm. I respect him and people I respect. I want to have an honest discourse with them. And that means discussing, you know, kind of what's happening in the country. It feels sort yeah. of decadent and negligent not to, but I also recognize that because he takes the attitude that eh, they're all corrupt, he sort of falls into a sort of soft nihilism that, is him sort of saying, don't make me think about this and don't make me talk about it, that, that I, I, I find myself becoming dogmatic with him and doctrinaire in ways that are me trying to get him to care about something that he's telling me he's not going to care about. And, and we all know that feeling, right? Yes. Around the holidays, we all know that feeling. Yes, we do. If we have family in the Midwest and we live in one of the coasts, absolutely. Or just even within a particular, it's not even geographic. Some of it is just everybody's got a different agenda. And when somebody's fanatical about whatever it is, we have a hard time or, or, or just impassioned about it. It's hard for us, it's hard for me to let it go and just say, you know what? He is who he is. We have our friendship and I'm not going to make him recognize how weird it is that the Democrats basically saved his 
um, you know, healthcare for, and, and in a time when he was really struggling, that it was good government. It was the hopeful story of good government trying to look out for people who might have a bad turn in their career that really allowed him to feel more security about what kind of health care his family was going to get. Like I could not get him to feel that and understand it. And the effort kind of undid our, not undid, but imperiled our relationship. So I just backed off. Yes. Um, well, I think we've all had that experience of feeling like we're going to lose friends or connections or relationships if we press the point. And so we just stop talking about it because, I mean, I kind of feel like members of my family have been essentially brainwashed after 20 years of watching nothing but Fox. Right. And there is really nothing I can do or say that's going to change their minds. I mean, I don't, the idea yeah. of trying to change people's minds at this point. So Steve, Charlotte's mother, she's not friends with her mother or her sister on Facebook because they're, you know, when Charlotte was um, putting political stuff up a few years ago, and they don't know we have a podcast. If they listened to this podcast, they would go berserk. So she just hasn't told them. Right. But it's interesting. And I mean, I would encourage you to um, at least let them know because here's the feeling I have is that you aren't going to change people's minds, but you can understand their minds and you can try to listen to the stories that are underneath the stories. You know, when we, when we're together in a classroom, a lot of my job is to listen to the surface story that somebody's writing and also to the story that's underneath that. Certainly the work that I did with Cheryl uh, on the podcast, the Dear Sugars podcast was very much about trying to recognize that everybody's in pain and everybody's putting that pain on the world and also acting self-destructively. And that, that's not because they're good people or bad people. They're just people who are ruled and, and sort of governed by different stories. And some of them serve them well and help them make progress and be loving and connected. And some of them, um, you know, hold them back and suspend them. And you're, um, to, to the extent that you can, your kin have a lot of stories in them besides the one that has been murmured into their ear by Fox mm -hmm. News or talk radio. They're also, uh, you know, pro probably members of communities of faith and really exactly. good neighbors and really good coworkers and really loving grandparents and really whatever it is, dot, dot, dot. And I think what I write about in, in, in the new book, the, the William Stoner book, is this idea that what happens is when we when we turn away from our own inner life, when we turn away from ourselves, we become susceptible to, be div to, to being divided from others. Mm -hmm. That is, wh when we sort of stop recognizing that, that, that um, wh what's going on inside of ourselves, we essentially become susceptible to demagogues who are going to divide us from other people. And that's, you know, Fox News is in that business. They make a lot of money off of that and, and right-wing radio makes a lot of money off of that and they the, that media uh, stream is I won't it's not really news it's a propaganda stream makes a lot of people in the fossil fuel industry and in and Wall Street and other places lots and lots of money and that's all happening but within the individuals who are listening to that they have a different and much more personal set of reasons for plugging into that Mm -hmm. a, a, a kind of wounded inner life and what strikes me as the most monstrous and cynical about our, our political moment right now is that 
deep down, the, the demagogues and admin know that they are manipulating very upset people mm-hmm. and making them really frightened and um, really upset and really paranoid and really violent in their thinking. And, and, and they know that they're doing that. And there's some part of them that knows that they are weaponizing the damaged part of people's inner lives and not just being a government or a media outlet that's saying, we advocate for these policies because we believe in these principles. This is something different. This is trying to to get people hooked on bad stories as a kind of addiction. And it's very painful to witness. And it's really important to recognize that that's only a part of who your kin are. Do you know what I mean? I totally know what you mean. Absolutely. Yeah, and 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 because even Cheryl and I would talk about this, and I would say, you know, look, you know, I I I'm troubled by my in-laws in many ways in in, in sort of in their politics, in, in, mostly in 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 how they um, the, the the kinds of ways in which they did not make my wife feel safe and seen in in, in her home, and, and and what that's done to her over the course of her life. Mm-hmm. and and the part of that that lives inside of her i'm i'm furious about that but also they didn't just wake up and decide to be mean or bad parents they were overwhelmed and they were overrun and they did what we all do and what i do as a parent which is when i get frustrated and lose patience and don't have enough self love i am shitty to my kids and uh you know reliably so I guess I have this feeling of like everybody's walking around sort of hurt and to the extent that you can, it, it's, you have to try to rem- remember that all those people angrily shouting in their red hats and whatever it is are human beings who are in pain and they're putting that pain out in the world. And that's terrible and it's heartbreaking, but it's not infuriating. It's heartbreaking. Well, you know, I think that this, t- the tendency in partisan politics now is to always demonize the other side and really make them be utterly bad, right? It's, right. And I, I, I like the way that you're talking in terms of trying to be a little bit more human and humane and show some compassion. It's the only way to hold on to faith, I think. And I'm not a, a, a person of, of kind of God exists above us sort of faith. But I do think that whatever we call God exists between people, and in the miracle of being having a con- you know consciousness and the capacity to recognize the suffering of others and the suffering of ourselves and all that, I don't know how to hold on to that. If I get into my grievance and my self righteousness, which I do at the you know trip of a finger or the the sight of a headline, I start to lose my faith, and then I think it's ball game. Yes. Hey, Steve, how long did you make podcasts with Cheryl? I think we made podcasts for almost four years, about three and a half, almost four years. Yeah. Okay. Wow. We've got, we got, I got a lot of help from them listening to them on, on, over the years. And I like the one, the one where you did emotional labor. Um, oh, yeah. oh my God. I think I've heard it three or four times and I tell all my friends to listen to it. If I just want to feel like, you know, I'm like, Oh, look at all the things I do. <laughs> Yeah. Very yeah, validating, I mean, my dear. Thank you. Yeah. Well, look, I mean, that was a great instance of, of the great 
uh, kind of gift that that podcast was for me because again I, I I'm trying to think about things and take responsibility but I don't get it always and so it was important for me to recognize here are all the things that Aaron is doing that I am vaguely aware of but I'm not precisely aware of and therefore I take it I, I take them for granted um, and you know I I think that there are I think everybody's doing different kinds of work and that everybody should be recognized for the kind of work they're doing. But I think as a rule um, in, in heterosexual partnerships, um, there's a powerful tendency for certain kinds of labor to just not be seen, uh, to become invisible or semi-invisible. And lots of people felt that. And it was nice for me to be able to recognize that because um, it made me less of a entitled shithead in in terms of being a, a partner. So, well, I think, you know, as a woman who does some emotional labor in my marriage, I tend to, I think I devalue it, and I don't proclaim it, and I don't ask for credit because I just do it in the background. Yeah. Occasionally, I will say, "Hey, I bought this present. It was somebody's birthday." so-and-so's having a birthday, your own brother, you better get a card for your brother, right? Check this out. My husband went skiing and he doesn't know that his nephew lives uh, on the mountain. I'm like, did you call? Yeah, did you call? No. Yeah. Don't start right. Because I know where he lives. But these are, right. these are, these are nice guys, right? But oh, they're peaches. Know. We're married to totally nice guys and they're just, I guess we're just conditioned to do certain things in our homes and yeah, I mean, I think what you're talking about, that those two examples is that women are socialized to some extent to think about relationships yes. and to value relationships and to, you know, be the glue that that that, that uh, yeah. keeps kin connected. And um, one of the forms of privilege of being born in a male body is, or certainly being socialized in a patriarchal culture is, eh, I got a backstop. My executive function when it comes to empathy resides in my wife or my mm -hmm. female partner or my girlfriend. Mm -hmm. um, there's a great line by the songwriter, um, Dan Byrne. He's talking, it's this great song called uh, um, um, uh, I'm going to find the title of it because I don't want to get it wrong, but it, like most American men, most American men it's called. And he says, like most American men, my value system is determined by whatever, by whichever women, woman I'm, I'm with. And it's just, you know, that it's really funny. It's like what he said. He also has a great song called Fascist, where he basically says, when I'm in traffic, I'm a fascist. You know, we all sort of say, oh, well, fascism is located over there in this dark precinct. And it's like, no, no, no. It's also inside all of us, that bad story, that, that habit of thought. Um, but wow. my, my sense is that sort of executive function, empath empathetically, a lot of what we call emotional labor is that the, the emotional um, executive function is located within the woman in a relationship. Not always and not exclusively, but, but predominantly. Yeah. Well, it's a little bit like the, um, the way that I will outsource taking the garbage out. That, you know, that's my husband's job. Right. Because he's the guy. And right. men have to deal with all the dirty, shitty stuff, and they've got more upper body strength. So I just hand that over, and you know, I'm totally capable of taking right. the garbage out. Yeah. Right. Yeah. No, I mean, it, we, we see it all the time, and it makes it, it's kind of complicated 
to navigate all that and change the rules. And that's a lot of what this sort of toxic nostalgia is about. I don't have to worry about new names for minority groups or new pronouns for new right. I don't want to worry about that. I don't want to worry about now I suddenly have to take the garbage out and you suddenly have to buy the cards for people's birthdays. There's a lot of people just saying, eh, this is too confusing for me. I want I want to I want to go back to when it was easier and more well defined, even right. if that means that. And this is where you get you know people voting against their own interests, even if it means that I'm locking in a system of power in which I'm one of the oppressed or potentially oppressed. Right. That is so interesting. I didn't think of that, Mr. Steve. We have talked to you for a while now, and I think we need to to wrap it up. And I think your your daughter needs you. Is that yeah. possible? Yeah. <laughs> it, it, she's very happy in front of her cartoon, but I would like to go see, you know, what she's up to before she becomes <laughs> chemically fused to that screen. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for speaking with us, and hopefully we'll call you again another time to have you on. Yeah. Yes. Absolutely. We could talk to you for a long time. Obviously. We look forward to it. Yeah. And we'll see you at Esalen Writers Camp in the summer. Yes. I'm very excited about that. And I know that we'll be out in California. Erin's going to be doing an event for, for her novel, which just came out, which is Dance, um, up in Sebastopol. And so if any of your listeners are, are in those environs, I think it's going to be Sunday, February 16th. She's going to do an event with some of our mutual friends. And I'm super excited about that. Oh, that's okay. fantastic. Oh my what, gosh. Congratulations. Which is Dance? Which is Aaron, what is Erin's last name? Also Almond? It's, yeah, Erin Aaron Eileen Almond, is the, her, the, her name is an author, and the book is called Witches Dance, okay. and uh, she, it just came out in the fall, and she's been doing events, and it's been awesome. I've been very happy to do the emotional labor of being like her roadie. Cool. Oh, that's <laughs> great. Well, thanks again, Steve. Okay, my pleasure, guys. Take care. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We hope that you enjoyed this episode. You can get more information about it on facebook.com backslash Sharla Danielle podcast.